We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and welcome to The Meaningful Life. I'm not certain how to explain today's edition without inviting you to switch off and do something else. But I will say that if you can face the topics we're going to be discussing today, you will find untold gold, by which I mean knowledge, growth, and a more meaningful life. Unfortunately, the path to the cave with all the riches goes through the underworld. Pain, failure, simple bad luck, and most of all, darkness, and more darkness. I think you can understand why this is a tough pitch. You don't want to go there, do you? But often we have no choice, and pretending the underworld does not exist does not make it go away. What you need is a guide through the darkness and back out into the light, and that's why I'm pleased to have Dr. Joanna Leprade as my witness today. She's a Jungian psychotherapist in California and an adjunct professor at the Colorado College teaching Jung and archetypal psychology. She's the author of a new book called Forged in Darkness, The Many Paths of Personal Transformation. Now, the minute you say the underworld, I start thinking of hell and Mm. lots of things like that. And I think that that's the wrong image. So perhaps you can explain to me what is the underworld? I think it's an accurate image for how people frame that space, which, you know, your introduction really beautifully captured. And when I speak of underworld in my book, I think I would kind of divide it into two things. It's a beautiful metaphor for, you know, that which is pain and suffering and hard in life. And, you know, the moments of our grief, the moments we encounter violence, the moments in which we experience disorientation in ourselves brought upon by something that isn't comfortable, that isn't in the day world, so to speak. And I think also the underworld is a really rich metaphor for the deep places within ourselves. You know, if we are to imagine the psyche as having a topographic orientation, we can say the direction of within ourselves to the deep places, the hard places is downward. And that motif of kind of inwardness, downwardness, tightness, darkness, you know, I think a lot of people have a pretty intuitive sense of that space within themselves. So we're also talking about our unconscious as well, are we? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, the first iteration of my book was my doctoral dissertation, which was pretty exclusive on underworld as unconscious. And that orientation in ourselves of the place in which is really hard to access and really hard to understand that you bump into things that you don't see and it's dark and it's confusing. And our human history and our relationship with the deep and dark places always acknowledges that it's challenging and hard to be within ourselves and in the dark places in life. But one of the things that I think us moderns have really abandoned is, yes, the deep and dark has always been scary, 
but we have also historically had enormous reverence for it. You know, we have worshipped, we have paid homage, we have understood that a relationship with those places is essential to a meaningful life, that it has to be done. And most of our myths and stories talk about these these figures that go into these really hard places to find what Jung calls the treasure so hard to attain, right? Something of enormous value. Which we're going to call gold today, just to cover everything. Because, you know, a wonderful saying is, the witches often have gold. You know, the dragons are sitting on gold. All these things that we are frightened of, the places we don't want to go, there's gold in them hills, so to speak. I'm going to give you a couple of things I know my clients would say. The first one is, well, if it's unconscious, that means I don't know it. I can't Mm. get to it. And so why should I bother with it? What would your answer to that be? If we imagine the unconscious psyche as having kind of laws of nature, you know, gravity or those orientations, I think the core one is that the unconscious always wants life. It's directed towards manifestation. And so you can say, I don't want to pay attention to that. What's the point of it? That does not mean in any way, shape, or form that that energy does not manifest in your life. You know, if we do not want to look at what we have repressed in ourselves, we will see it in projected form on another outside ourselves. We don't get control of that. And I think understanding your unconscious psyche is ultimately in some way about agency. It's about understanding who you are so that you can have choice in your life. Because, you know, one of my favorite things that Jung says is, if you do not make the unconscious conscious, it'll direct your life and you will call it fate. And so you can say, I don't want to look at that. No, thanks. That's not for me. But it will still move you. And why that is and how it will show up will be just as unique as all of our lives. But you do not get a choice in that part of yourself being influential in your life. I sometimes explain to my clients by saying, your unconscious has its hands on the steering wheel too. You just don't see those hands. And it's sending you left or refusing to allow you to go Mm -hmm. left when you consciously want to go left. There's always, you just miss the turning somehow. Totally. Well, you know, I, I kind of joke with my clients that if I ever had a little banner or a mantra, I would say consciousness is the cure. We're looking, all of us, and especially in this modern world, we want our fixes, we want our cures, we want that. We have that fantasy. And making the unconscious conscious is the answer. What that means and what you have to do with that, that's totally the journey. But if you do not know what you have to work on and chew on in yourself and what's up for you, you don't get a chance. Then that wheel's turning you off road and you're you know, in the ditch and you're like, wait a second, how did I get here? What was that about? And if you can see what that was about, then you have choice. Then you have the capacity to move in a different way. So pulling out of your book, a couple of other things that we can find in the underworld are the discarded parts of ourselves. Mm. What do you mean by the discarded parts of ourselves? Depending on who we are, right? Where we live, what society has shaped us, what our personal upbringing is, all of that comes together to create an image of who we think we should be and who we think we might have to be to fit in, to be loved, to be purposeful, whatever it is, right? And 
most people discard parts of themselves. Do you mind if we sort of use you as an example? What would be the public part of yourself and what would be the discarded parts of yourself that you've Mm. spent a lot of time and trained to get back again? You know, I I love that question because I think it's very kaleidoscopic. We all have many faces that we wear. You know, myself in this role in my kind of vocational path is very different than who I am with my friends and my family and very different than who I am in my small spaces, right? And, you know, if I ever, you know, so to speak, get to ask the question at the end of life, one of the questions that I want to ask is why is it so hard for people to be themselves? It's a fascinating question. And I think as a therapist, it's enormous to see what people, if we think of almost the richest, the most golden, the most essential part of our beings being so risky to kind of bring into the world. I think a lot of people, and I think even myself included, have discarded parts of that potential in myself, that to risk it is so much, to feel fullness in ourselves is so much. And you know, and I think this is one of the reasons that the descent within is so essential, because I do feel that a lot of people discard the most essential parts of themselves and they show up in one way. And, you know, I'm functional and I can hold a job and I speak well and I'm X, Y, and Z. But maybe that means that I have to kind of lock away the spontaneity or the lightness in me and the funniness in me. And it doesn't feel appropriate. And then, then the questions become, well, how do I get into that in this life so I can have balance and I can live in one way, but also the other? And if we don't have an orientation to, okay, that's uncomfortable and I don't feel like it belongs here, I've I've cast it aside, then we lose it, right? It sinks too far into the depths. But a lot of these things are discarded when we're children. So give me an example Mm -hmm. of something that you might have discarded as a child because, you know, your parents didn't particularly want a child with dot, dot, dot. Fill in the dots for me. I think this is the the core of shadow, right? As we learn really young, especially in the early psyche, that we have to, you know, maybe this is too general, but I'll make it a, a generational challenge as well. I think every generation has kind of a soul task. And as a millennial, I think the soul task is failure. And mm. because I think... And this, this is a big journey for me, and it's a journey for a lot of my peers that I talk to about this, is growing up with kind of so much given to you. You know, I grew up with parents, I have wonderful parents, they've loved me, they've encouraged me, they've seen a lot in me. And with that becomes this question of, do I have to go through life laying a golden egg everywhere I go? And if I don't, what does that mean? And can I do that? And in that, I think there's an enormous fear of failure. If I do something that isn't celebrated, that isn't you know, the children of praise parenting, which the millennial generation is, comes from that. What if I risk messing up? Can I still put myself out there? Can I hold that? Almost like without a recognition of failure, I don't have the digestive enzymes for it. It's enormously uncomfortable. And so what ends up happening is it stifles things, right? Can I speak here? Should I write this book? Should, should I try to be out in the world? What if it's not perfect? What if it's not a golden egg? What if it's just another book? Yeah, exactly. What if it's just another book? Or, you know, and I think this feeds the imposter energy of, well, here I am with this golden egg, but it's actually just a rock that's got <laughs> gold flakes on it. And when are people 
going to see that, you know, and is it okay for me to still risk being myself to follow my passions? If it's not, you know, the clouds open up and that beautiful light and everyone's singing and dancing every time something happens. And just as you were speaking, I could actually feel a little bit of your vulnerability came into the room. Oh, 100%. I mean, I, I think it's in that shadow, right? That discarded place that, that exists in that space because we're afraid of it, right? I, I don't want to admit that, you know, is it okay that all I ever did was write a book? Or is it okay that I have a small private practice and that's meaningful and I live in a small town and I have a life that I want, but is it big enough? Is it okay enough? Am I enough? It's almost a prophecy, right? You are so great and wonderful and you have so much and you have so much more than your parents had. Your life has to be so wonderful. You become Oz, right? And I think a lot of my longing and I think a lot of the longing in my generation is like, can we pull that curtain back and just be like, hey, it's me, that like wizened old man in the back. Can I be that? Is that okay? And I was just thinking I'm from the boomer generation, the very end of it. And I think with my generation, it's, are you allowed to be different? There was a very, very clear idea of, you know, how you had to be sort of almost, you had to have a good job and a good job would be a secure job. A therapist, forget about that, that's insecure. And you have to have 2.4 children and you have to wash your car at the same time as everybody else on a Sunday. I'm exaggerating a bit, but to be actually different and not want that is very shame-inducing. So maybe your generation gets anxiety. You know, we have to have the monopoly on shame. But I think it's interesting to think about how different generations have different stuff in their underworld. And we sort of think that if we are brilliant parents, we can cast out the underworld for our Mm -hmm. children. Because Mm -hmm. your parents must have thought, if we praise them, if we tell them they're great, they will be great and life will be great and we'll cast away the underworld. Well, you know, and I think that the casting away of darkness, it's so, it's just everywhere in our culture. It's, and, and ironically, we experience so much of it. And, and I think, you know, that generational task, it's like the silent generation, right? The parents of the baby boomers, they raised their children like tomatoes in the garden. It was like, mm. I watered you. What else did you need? And then the baby boomers were like, wait a second, I needed more nourishment, but I'm told that I have to live a certain way and I have to have that white picket fence. And so they raised their children with this enormous emphasis on you can be whoever you are. You can have everything you have, like fertilizer, you know, I'll clip your leaves, I'll make you a little path, more sunlight. You know, there's so much emphasis on that for, I think, a lot of people. So I think in my generation, it's like, oh, wow, I'm told I can do everything. I have all the choice in the world and I, and I need to do something well. And what does that mean? And that emphasis, I think, you know, in our culture on the burden of happiness, the burden of ease and contentment. You know, if you ask a parent, what do you want for your child's life? A lot of them will say, I want my child to be happy. They don't say, I want my child to live meaningfully and find out who they are and be able to navigate life in a, an intentional way. They want ease and comfort. And I think that's an enormous problem. Yeah, my parents would always say to me, we just want you to be happy, mainly in a rather passive-aggressive way, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. Well, you know, and I wonder, you know, one of the things I get curious about in our culture is, 
you know, we're living in this really interesting time where we're globally connected visually and auditorially and all that in an unprecedented way. We have this kind of drive to be happy. We see all the images everywhere, right? And at the same time, we're, I think I see this a lot in the therapeutic community is that kind of therapeutic lexicon of suffering, how to kind of accurately clinically describe your traumas, your whatever, it's bleeding into the collective, I think, in a way that we haven't seen yet. And people are over here, right? Like the psyche is a seesaw. They're over here saying, I have to be happy. I have to be happy. And then they're learning about this language that gives them permission to suffer. And so you start seeing people throw this stuff around really lightly, like, oh man, you know, I was cut off in the grocery line and it was enormously traumatic for me. And it's like, what? But then people hear that word and they're like, oh yeah, it's okay that you're experiencing something dark. Because I think people are looking for permission to acknowledge that life is not light and easy and comfortable. And is it okay if I'm scared and shamed and still grieving? You know, is it okay that there's darkness in life that I don't know who I am? And I think we're giving ourselves terms that people look at and they're like, oh yeah, you know, I've, I've got this diagnosis. I'm allowed to suffer. And instead of just giving themselves that permission. Yeah. It's like I had a client just recently that said, can you tell me what's wrong with me? And mm. we're actually working on, uh, on a, a Grimm's fairy tale at the moment, which meant that we were sort of looking at a universal story. And I said, there's nothing wrong with you. You're just dealing with your portion of the complexities of being a human and the difficult terrain we have to navigate. You're just a human being that's having problems. But we're very quick to sort of pathologize ourselves. We're enormously quick. And one of the things I like to say to my clients, you know, we all have our little things that we repeat as, in Greek mythology, granted, there are two exceptions to this, but all the gods kind of pop into existence at age six and up. And when they do pop into existence, they're fully formed. And the human condition does not pop into existence. We don't get that privilege. We have to learn how to be ourselves. And people come, I think, to this life expecting that they're going to be preformed. How do you fix me? How do you make me that God that just came into existence, all tightened, organized, and all the right things? And there's so little room and so little patience for, you know, a different attitude. And I think I really try to wrestle with this in my book because, you know, in the mythic unpacking that I do, you know, I'm paralleling this attitude that we have around fixing, being strong, willfully getting life under control with, you know, the great Greek hero Hercules. And that attitude dominates our relationship to ourselves. We're told we have to be Hercules. You know, your client that comes in and says, tell me what's wrong with me so that I can take up my sword and my mantle and I can willfully go at that and make that better. So much in life is limited when we have that attitude. And we were told we need to get up there, get better you know, fix it, be strong, be courageous, be unaffected. You know, Hercules does the same thing his entire life over and over again. Do we want that in ourselves? So we're going to be giving you some sort of alternative images and ways of thinking about things in this podcast today. So it's going to be tough, but I, as I said at the beginning, we've got gold here. At least we hope we're going to find gold along the way. 
So just to sort of make it a bit more concrete, perhaps you would share with us one of your own personal descents into the underworld when your brother had an accident. And this sort of misfortune is something that we all come across, but you've put it into the image of the underworld. So tell me about it and help us look at it within this mythic framework. You know, I'll start that with saying, you know, I wrote this book because I had to. I wrote this book because I, when I found myself in that place, when my brother had this severe brain injury, when I found myself in that place with the lights going off, I was fully Hercules, you know, strong, coming in there, protected, like gonna stand in front of death and be like, no, not for you. You don't get him. Like, willfully all of that, that huge energy that is such a gift, right? It's such a huge part of who we are as people and it's a powerful gift. And I think this book comes from my own soul's journey to need to learn how to move in a different way. And when my brother had his brain injury and you know, I was in that space trying to keep everything together and listen to the doctors and help my parents and help my sister and just being like, you know, Rambo, you know, there was a moment in it where I really started to realize like, I'm missing everything that's happening here and I can't hold this sword up anymore. Or maybe it was a shield, right? Like I can't do it. And around me in my kind of fracturing, I really started noticing this rhetoric where people would be like, you know, be strong, be a hero, or he'll make it. He's a good person. You know, he's a hero. And I, and it seeded this question in me of like, what is heroism? What does that even mean? And why are we saying, yes, my brother's like, a, you know, he's a wonderful, beautiful person. And, but does that mean that he is promised a beautiful long life? Like, absolutely not. And so it started this kind of turning in me. And, you know, I would also make the caveat that when you are in the underworld, you know, in those acute stages of what's going on, you probably don't get the option to be in this kind of reflective space. And that's okay you know, we we have to be ready to digest it. And in the moment where your body's freaking out and you're in survival and you're just trying to keep your head on your shoulders, you know, we all have to be prepped for surgery to go into surgery. It's probably not the time that that will be available. And it wasn't for me by any means. So, you know, after that kind of acute phase and I started my master's that then led to my doctorate, this was a question that really percolated in me asking myself, what is heroism? And why are we told that it has to look one way? And, you know, reading Joseph Campbell and and reading, you know, his wonderful book, Hero with a Thousand Faces, you know, his effort in that book is the hero has a thousand faces. We are telling the same story of human transformation in many different ways. And I got really curious about, well, why are we only telling it in one way? What happened? And this book is really that that curiosity. And it's an exploration of Hercules is only one mythic figure of many that go in and out of the underworld and who they are, what their mythic attributes are, what happens to them, how they respond, gives us an archetypal framework for imagining other ways that we can can navigate that space that might be more appropriate to maybe the situation or maybe who we are right? That we have to get curious about 
how do we uniquely metabolize those spaces so that we can learn from them, so that we can endure them because escape is not an option. You don't get to get out of it. And so what does that mean? When you can accept that, how do you have to show up? And if you're told you can only do one size shoe fits all, it's this way. I think for a lot of people, it's so overwhelming and it's so limiting. Like it was for me in my journey to so determinedly need to control and fix something that I never in any way, shape or form ever had control over. So if you weren't going to be Hercules, which mythical character did you sort of embody in the end? I think to be honest, it was many of them. You know, there were many different kind of moments. I think there is that plurality to the mythic world where you can kind of see different parts of yourself. You know, fairy tales, same way, right? It's, they're all the stage that give you reflection on you know, the qualities, the archetypal energies within you. And I think for me, it started in really different ways. And some of the myths that I think personally resonate with me that I'm really drawn to is my favorite hero was Aeneas. He's the hero that in in his mythology, he survived. He's the kind of highest ranking survivor after the fall of Troy. And he leads his people out of Troy to find a new land. And in kind of myth and history, that fine line, Aeneas is considered to be the founder of Rome as the father of Romulus and Remus. And Aeneas kind of, you know, he's wandering around and he's told by his mother Aphrodite that he needs to go into the underworld and speak with his father Anchistus, you know, to, to find the answers, which is very often the kind of formula for a hero to go into the underworld. And Aeneas does something really wonderful. He he immediately knows that a task like that is too great for him. And so he must find a guide and he prays and he asks for guidance and his mother directs him to this Apollonian temple where he meets this priestess named the Sibyl. And the Sibyl agrees to go into the underworld with him. And Aeneas demonstrates enormous reverence for these places. And he's making all the sacrifices all the time. And in the underworld, he does something really extraordinary that I I think is really unfamiliar for us in a lot of ways is Aeneas listens the entire time he's in there. He watches and he listens. He goes there and he sees the people suffering and he cries for them. And Sybil, meanwhile, is just like, and this happened and this happened. And he's just there. And he finally gets to his father and He tells his father why he's here and his father starts unfolding kind of the order of the universe and what happens in the underworld and, of course, his future and what he needs to do to, you know, achieve his goal and found Rome and all this stuff. And I think for me, what I love so much about Aeneas is he reminds us that if you can listen to those deep places within you, you will learn more about those spaces than any other figure. Aeneas learns more about the underworld and the order of the universe and what will come than any mythic figure that goes into the darkness. And it's because he's open and he sees those places as valuable. So translate Aeneas into what you actually did in the real world so we can actually see the connection between the, the myth and what you did in the real world. Like I was saying in the beginning, I did not respond to my brother's journey and from this place. 
And that, of course, seeded the curiosity in me. And so I'll answer that question from a place of kind of like after I had really chewed on these ideas. And what comes up for me is when my mother-in-law passed away, I was, you know, past my doctorate, way into editing the book, all of this. And I, I would think of Aeneas a lot. And I would think, what is my task here? And it was like, this is not something I can influence with my will. I'm not Hercules, right? I can't save my husband. I can't stop this. And so I have to be open to what this experience, which is larger than me, is trying to invite into my life. And what is this going to be meaningful for in me? I have to ask it questions. I have to listen to it, right? I have to let it wash over me. And I think what it gave me was humility and it gave me vulnerability and it gave me this kind of, well, this is here. And now I have to kind of bend in it. I can't be the stiff branch that breaks. I have to let this happen. And I think it made me more present ultimately. Thus, I was able to be there for my husband who was experiencing a deeper darkness than I was as he was losing his mother. And to kind of call upon the parts of myself that could listen to this, to could be patient in it and not rush it. So I assume you're able to listen to your mother-in-law as well. What did she want to say to you that maybe she couldn't have communicated to her son that you could be a conduit for? You know, I think these types of questions get edgy and intense. And I think personally, you know, the, the, in, a, in a literal way, my mother-in-law died of brain cancer. So while she was dying, the kind of verbal cognitive space wasn't available which happens a lot, you know, for, for that kind of any, anything to do with the brain. But I think on a soul level, my mother-in-law was the son of that family. Everything orbited around her and she took care of everything and created this incredible warmth and love that eclipsed a lot, like the giant tree, right? And nobody could kind of grow into who they were. And I've always wondered is there a part of this kind of soul exchange that she left and everyone in her family had to wake up from it? Mm. And I think even including me, like waking up to the parts of myself that were able and willing to kind of be that great mother that eventually cripples and showing me you're doing this too. And you have that capacity to do this too. So you need to clip your wings a little bit and let another person kind of come into their own directive. And I think that's a message that I felt really powerfully in it. So let me just sort of point up what you're saying, because that was really, really beautiful. And thank you so much for sharing that with us. Mm -hmm. That this is a very dark place and actually seeing how on one level, the giant tree is wonderful because it's provides shelter for everybody and feeds the birds and everything else. But other things can't grow underneath it. And actually being able to hold that is really beautiful. To actually be able to encourage your husband to grow now the shade has disappeared is also beautiful. But we've got something even more extraordinary here that you are aware of your own big tree potential, for want of a better word. 100%. And I think, you know, that's like Aeneas is a world builder, right? He creates the great civilization that starts the Western world. And 
we all have the potential to build a world and we do in our own ways, right? Our own little world. And I think one of the things this experience taught me was, yeah, this potential is in me. And there's even a part of me that's like, yeah, you should control everything and do everything. You can do it better than everyone. Right? We you, all have that You could be the best tree in the forest. <laughs> you are the best tree in the forest, right? That part of ourselves. it's so honest. And I saw this life live out where she did that and she carried that. And it was too much for her being. And I think, you know, if we imagine it forward on kind of like a soul contract level, if the trade, the sacrifice, so to speak, was, hey, you know, this is going to wake your whole family up and help people live their own trees, right? Become stronger in themselves. And you just have to kind of give up your life. She would have signed that in a second. And maybe she did, right? I don't, I don't have answers to that, but it's enlivened everybody. And Yes, so sad. Yes, terrible. Would I take it back in a heartbeat? 100%. But I don't get to. And this is the point of the underworld journey. You don't get to. And so now what? How are you going to make meaning out of that? And if you can't figure out your way into those spaces, you don't get to. You, you'll repress it. And then back to the law of the psyche. Guess what? When we repress something, what we repress persists. It comes back in another way. You don't get to get rid of it. And I can't imagine any other way of you learning all of this stuff and discovering it beyond going into the underworld. I think it feels only fair that I should share one of my underworld experiences. My partner died when I was 37, mm. which is a very young, I mean, now I thought I was, you know, quite old at the time, but now having part, and I'm now 63, 37 is like a baby. Mm. And it opened me up to a depth of feeling I'd never had before. And unfortunately, all of the feelings were dark feelings. But if mm. you've been opened up for the dark ones, actually, there's a depth to the light ones as well. And, you know, I was able to sit with much deeper material from my clients and to be able to write in a much deeper kind of way. Um, there was yeah. gold there, but do I want the gold? <sighs> but as you say, we've got no choice about this. Beyond, are we going to do it consciously or unconsciously? That's almost the only choice we've got. I could not agree more. You know, Jung says somewhere in the Red Book, he says, I behold death because it teaches me how to live. And we can make that bigger, right? Like I behold the underworld or darkness because it teaches me how to live. And yeah, those places, those experiences are the hardest. And I'm there, I'm 100% there to be corrected on this, but I have yet to meet anyone in my life that has tapped into a greater capacity in themselves, even if it's a dark capacity, like your ability to empathetically guide, right? That, that kind of cultivation of psychopomp in you that you don't get unless you've been in those spaces. And so if anyone has expanded, stretched, become more than they ever thought possible in that sunny little daylight, let me know. I'm, I'm there for it. But I don't believe it. It's not true. So if the underworld is all about growth, why are we so frightened of it? Mm. You know, I wish I knew the answer to that. I think it is the $64 million question, isn't it? It really is. You know, we as a species, our first documented kind of archaeological efforts are burying things and worshiping the darkness. I think perhaps it's our enormous fear of the unknown 
and our lack of control and what we can't get. And then you, you know, you shade that in dark and it's even more intense. I also think there is something to not having a meaningful relationship to it, not to prepare for it, to, to have this alive symbols, uh, ways in, you know, like I was saying earlier, you know, our human history, we really revered the darkness. We had elaborate rituals. We had elaborate attention to it. We, we were familiar with it in, in the ways, the humble ways that we can be and familiar with something so unknowable. But, you know, to step into that place is to forfeit your control. And on a really psychodynamic level, the part of us, you know, the ego is responsible for continuity of being. It's a pattern maker. And so we repeat the same things over and over again so that we get the enormous containment and privilege of saying, I feel, I think, I am, etc. But because of that pattern-making rigidity, the ego does not like change. It's a very austere part of the psyche. It wants its fortress the same. It wants its dinner party the same. And, you know, I think this, the darkness, death, is the great other that that part of the psyche can't wrap its head around and doesn't have control over. And so we fear it enormously because it it can dethrone our fragile sense of, of I, and it easily does. And when we do get dethroned, right, that's when change happens. But we fight it because I think our beings are not set up for it. Yeah, I mean, that um, I was talking to a friend about being in psychoanalysis, um, and he says, but, you know, you're a sort of together kind of person. You don't need it. And here comes the kicker question. Aren't you frightened that you're going to discover something terrible that's going to sort of undo you? And that's a very common fear. That's the other one that my clients say, well, if I look deeply, I might discover something I don't want to discover. What would you say to that? I would say it's a hundred percent. You will. That's the point, right? Like, yeah, it's scary. And you will 100% discover something you are unfamiliar that is uncomfortable in yourself. And this is where, if I were to say, you know, if somebody were to say like, what's the most important thing that you can do in this work? I would say it's about your attitude. If you say what is down there, it's got its long claws and its jagged teeth and it will consume me. It will. But if you say, wow, something's down there, I might lose my footing and it might be really intense and I don't know what that'll be like, but I, it might be valuable for me. If you can cultivate curiosity, you have a chance of building a relationship with that part of yourself, of not being overwhelmed. You know, I think in psychologically, in our what we repress, it's like I said in the beginning, it wants life. You know, say your insecurity kind of comes to the door and knocks and it's like, hey, I'm insecure. And then you shut the door because you're like, I don't want to look at that. That insecurity is going to come knock harder. Then it's going to knock a lot harder. And then it's going to go down the street and it's going to dress up as anger. And it's going to come and bang on your door. And then it's going to get its other friends that are even scarier looking. And eventually it's going to kick through your door. Or it's going to come down the chimney. Yeah. And then you have to face this enormous, overwhelming presence that at its heart was never that bad in the sense that it never wanted to annihilate you. It wanted life. It wanted recognition. And so if we can have an attitude that says, yeah, oh man, this stuff is so intense and so hard, and I don't really have a choice to be with it. So I have to try to start in small ways and I have to kind of go into it. That pressure might not build in a way that feels so apocalyptic to us. 
So two things I took away is nobody escapes the underworld. If you think you're escaping it, it'll just come running after you. And the second one is this idea of ritualizing the darkness. The way to deal with the darkness is to ritualize it. So what do you mean by that in sort of everyday stuff that you, not you, but I could use in my daily life? I'm sure you use it anyway, but um, how can I use that in my daily life? I think, you know, the Jungian world calls this the symbolic life, right? Living in relationship to the symbols of meaning that fuel us, right? And I, well, maybe I'll back up before I jump to that. Is that I would start answering your question by saying, you have to find your way in. My book is a self-awareness book. It's not a self-help book. It will not give you four ways to ritualize darkness. You have to ask yourself, what is meaningfully alive for me? What is my symbol of that? Do I light a candle? And that makes me kind of think of myself as light and acknowledge, you know, light pushing out dark and dark taking over the light. Do I journal? Do I write down my dreams and imagine them? Do I think of everybody that I love in those spaces that are gone and just kind of hold that for a second? You know, for me, I'll be transparent. My kind of ritual of darkness is when I get small in myself, which we all do, like, oh, you know, the, the little small thoughts we have, or my husband does something that drives me insane or whatever. I, I think I'm going to die someday. It could be tomorrow. Like that presence is here all the time with me. And is this important to me? And it's an enormous relativizer for me because I get stuck quickly in spaces. So like I get, uh, my complexes get activated and I'm like glued to the wall, like that Velcro being like, no, I will hate this or I will be triggered, whatever it is. And that's the key for me. And it's, for me, it's just imaginal. And sometimes I'll imagine, you know, like if I feel really annoyed and grippy, I'll like imagine my hands as black, like dead looking or, you know, and it's just like, this is a part of my life. Do I, does this matter to me? And it unsticks me like nothing I've ever had. And do I spend an enormous time in those kind of existential places? Not all the time. I mean, but you have to find your way in and it has to be meaningfully alive. And to kind of jump to that symbolic attitude, you know, the Jungian approach, I think in a lot of ways comes from Jung's own religious experience and him saying, I get that the sacred or the larger parts of ourselves are really, really important. But this kind of Judeo-Christian relationship that my father had, his father was a priest, it's not meaningful for me. So what is meaningful for me? And that's really where I think he discovered the unconscious in his way and his dreams of finding your alive, active symbol. If your symbol of darkness is the color black, or if your symbol of darkness is Whatever it is, right? It has to be charged for you. Otherwise, it will not soak in. My way of getting into this is I think about borders because mm. the idea of borders, we want to have a border where we have the good things in one section and the bad things in the other section. And I live in Berlin, which is famous for having a wall down the middle where they tried to mm. divide one part of the city from the other. Both sides thought the other side of the side was where all the badness was and they could keep all the goodness yeah. in. And when I find myself trying to divide things into good and bad, I imagine that I'm getting a border and I'm trying to shove things there. And I think, 
hang on, this is a pointless task. You just cannot divide things into good and bad. They just are. So I suppose yeah. that's my symbolic way of, yeah, uh, of doing it. Yeah. So even just in the two of us, right, this is what's so important and so rich is if I were to say to you, hey, you know, what you have to do is imagine your death and that will make you feel better. No. You'd be like, well, that's not my way in. Right. I, but I'm like, no, no, you have, you have to, that's the, that's the right way in. That's, that's how you do it. That's how it's done. That's the wrong attitude. If you're like, you know, it's weird, but I imagine a peeling an orange and I just think about the layers in life and it grounds me. Great. 100%. You've done it. That's it. It's your way in. And ours are really different. And that's the whole point. You know, can you find your way in? The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. Let me tell you about my Substack newsletter. I'd love my Meaningful Life listeners to subscribe. The newsletter is a mixture of relationship advice and my thoughts about building a meaningful life. I'm hoping that as it grows, it's going to become a shared space. You can tell me about your thoughts and suggest ideas for future podcast episodes. We have additions in my Substack newsletter about zombie marriages closure, a study into our sex lives compared with 30 years ago, how everybody these days seems to be a narcissist. All of these topics we're covering, you can find out more at themeaningfullife.substack.com. So please do sign. Details will be in the show notes. One of the things that we offer on The Meaningful Life is a chance to write in with a dilemma that you're having at the moment. If you have a dilemma you'd like me to discuss with my guests, all you have to do is go to my website, www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast. You'll find a form to do that. And here is our letter for today. My husband had an affair and I find it hard to put into words the feelings and devastation I feel. It physically hurts so much, especially because during the affair period we are in the process of adopting a child. The other woman was very close and knew things about our relationship which others didn't, like when we had a row or things were tough. Since discovery, my husband has cut all contact with her and we have read and used resources on the net to help us. He says he loves me, and wants me more than anything else, and that he made a stupid, stupid mistake, which then snowballed and he couldn't manage it. We've worked hard and talked and listened to each other, but I struggle so much with the images and thoughts in my head of them together being intimate with each other. I know I want to make our marriage and relationship work, he is my best friend, and I want to be with him. I just want to make these things go away. Now, I think an affair is definitely an example of being thrown into the underworld. Mm -hmm. So how could the image of the underworld help with this kind of dilemma? For me, the most powerful statement in that letter is, I just want to make these things go away. And you can't. It's done. It's happened. And when I did the research for this book, one of the things that really surprised me was, you know, I was reading all of this primary material about underworld journeys. Most underworld journeys 
There's an elaborate process where they get into the underworld. It's even more elaborate when they're in the underworld. And then when it's time to go up, it's like one or two sentences. It's like, and then they come up to the surface. And that fascinated me because it shows in our very, very infancy of our storytelling of self, how impatient we are with the ascent. The ascent is the hardest part. This is a wonderful example of being thrown into the underworld. I don't know how she discovered this, right? But in my imagination, it's like learning this at your kitchen table, right? Kind of hitting you like a bus and suddenly your whole world is unraveling. And so, yeah, we want this to go away, to go back before, you know, that kitchen table moments where the world unraveled. But we don't have that time turner. You know, it's like I said earlier, escape isn't an option. And so how do we understand that the ascent is a process, that this doesn't just get to go away? I mean, I think that is the most important thing, yeah. that we understand that first and foremost, because we have a sort of message in our society, if I'm clever enough, if I'm talented enough, if I just find the right podcast, mm-hmm. I will be able to do that. And the fact that you can't do it is nothing to do with you. It is the underworld, you know, that there isn't an escape hatch in the underworld and you're just stupid because you can't find it. There is no escape hatch. And that takes a lot of pressure off. Mm -hmm. Well, I think you're hitting the nail on the head because the question to me, the sensibility coming out of this letter is, What's wrong with me that I'm still thinking about them together, that I'm still asking myself the question, why did this happen? And i.e., why am I still in relationship with this? What's wrong with me? Can't I remove it? And if we imagine the world in that sense, we have the day world, we have the underworld. They are a part of the same world. This part of the experience, it's not a failure. This is that Herculean attitude. It's not a failure that you've found yourself in a really hard place. And it's not a failure that you're struggling to get out of it. You know, there are a lot of questions that are probably really scary, that are underworldly in themselves to this. You know, like, why did this affair happen? It takes more than one to create a disconnection that someone would leave a relationship. Why do you still mull over it? What's in those questions that's touching something in you still, right? That you believe that he would leave you. What what in yourself has bought that ticket? It's like, well, I'm somebody that this would happen to. I mean, there's, and, and those questions might not be the right ones for this particular person. But if we are enchanted with the fantasy that we can find that escape hatch, we will miss the questions you know, in Arthurian legends, the, you know, the, the Holy Grail and that kind of image of, you know, eternal life and wholeness, it's the thing to get, right? We're all after the Holy Grail. Percival, the, the knight that finds the Holy Grail, when he, he finds it in the Fisher King's castle and he hears that it's there and Percival goes and he's a young man and he kind of comes in and he asks the Fisher King to give me the Holy Grail and tells him why he needs to. And the Fisher King's like, you're not asking the right questions. And so Percival leaves and goes on all these adventures and lives this life and comes back as an older man and basically tells the Fisher King that he understands that life is about asking questions. And the Fisher King rewards him with the Holy Grail. And if we translate that to this letter, right, it's how can this person ask the questions of darkness that are essential to being in this space so that that ascent and that meaningful integration and change is made available because stewing in how do I get out of it? What's wrong with me? I want this to just go away. I wish we had that magic wand. And 
for all your listeners. If it was available, you'd already have it. So how do we ask a meaningful question? I think a meaningful question has to have openness. It has to just in some way be about kind of living the question. It has to be about curiosity and openness because in some level you have to let something in, right? The answer to your question, you don't have it, right? That's why you're asking the question. So can you be open and curious enough to behold what might come, even if it makes you really uncomfortable? So having sat with many, many people who ask questions about that with their partner, they tend to sort of think they already know the answer. So they tend to ask questions like a barrister, Mm -hmm. and a barrister leads the witness to try and tell the story they want to tell, because they, in their head, have actually got a story. So first and foremost, the first meaningful question is, do you truthfully have a story in your own head about it, and you're trying to get your partner to confirm it? So that would be my first meaningful question. Mm. Do you have a story in your head? If so, what is it? Mm. Write it down, because when you write it down, it might seem a little bit preposterous because most people's stories, they're full of fears and they are bigger and darker than they really think they are. So that would be my first meaningful question. And here is another meaningful question I've just thought of. What can't you tell me? Mm. And your partner might not know the answer to that straight away, Mm -hmm. but there are all sorts of things we can't tell our partner. Mm -hmm. I mean, If I'm going to be truthful, there are things I can't tell my partner and I'm a therapist because I think it's going to be too upsetting. But ultimately, we have to say these things because, as we've just explained, these things don't go away. They come back in dark forms Mm -hmm. and an affair is a dark form. Mm -hmm. So what are the things that you can't tell me? Now, the things that they might tell you I think you have to hold on to the answers lightly because this is not, you know, just because they can't tell you um, that, I don't know, your breath stinks. I mean, I'm just using a ludicrous example. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're right, but you've got to sort of hold it lightly and sort of explore it because somewhere in there, there might be some truths. It might not be that your breath stinks. And as I say, it's a ludicrous example, but there is some element there that might be useful. Yeah, I hope that looking about affairs in such an incredibly different way from the way that most people look at them has been helpful for you. If you'd like to write in with your question, as I say, www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, and you'll find a form there. We'd uh, love to hear from you. So I have to turn the tables on you, Joanna, as a witness on The Meaningful Life. I have to ask, what makes your life meaningful? I think, you know, what makes my life meaningful is, I, it's, it's funny because, it, I, you know, if your podcast was called something else, I would say connection to what's meaningful for me, but I want to be more general because it more maybe precise. And it's, you know, Joseph Campbell has this, you know, that, that the great mythologist, he has that, that famous line, follow your bliss, right? And it's, it's connection to the deeper passion in myself. You know, there's a wonderful alchemical saying that kind of translates to nature delights in nature. And it's like, if you can tap into your own nature, 
right? Whatever it is, whatever that is, that jazzes you and gets you excited and gives you life energy, it delights in itself. And I think if you can, if you get the privilege, right? Jung says the privilege of a lifetime is to become who you truly are. If, if you get the privilege of being in that space, life is so meaningful. And if you can atone yourself, you know, I think about my work as a therapist and my fascination and with, you know, my clients always tell me, they're like, you give a great pep talk to how to suffer, you know, that for whatever reason, I love being in these really, really heavy conversations. You know, I don't want to talk in my professional life. I don't want to talk about the dailies. I want to talk about what is bleeding out in you. And it's really heavy. And the stories I've heard in my life, like I've had, you know, sometimes they come home with you and you have to like, carry them. And it's like, it, it can be so intense, but it brings me so much joy. It's so meaningful. Unfortunately, this is where the conversation ends for most people. But if you are a supporter of the Meaningful Life, details coming in a moment, or you subscribe through Apple or Spotify directly, you get to hear the rest of the conversation. So in the rest of the conversation, Joanna is going to be telling me about the three things she knows deep down to be true. And we're also going to be looking at some more mythical heroes and some gods as well, that uh, might have ways of you approaching the underworld in a different way that is possibly a little bit better than trying to be Hercules. So if you want to do that, here come the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.